everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of Relating to DevSecOps, where we explore the development, security, and operational issues of today so that we can share and solve real-world problems with people that face them. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and leave feedback wherever you listen to your podcast so we can bring content that matters to you. I'm Ken Toller, and while Simon is out, I have a very special guest today to talk about another security acronym to add to your collection, and that is CSPM. Cloud Security Posture Management. We have application and cloud security expert extraordinaire, Mike or Michael McCabe. And Mike is a security consultant running MBM Consultants based in the DC Metro slash Virginia area. And his work is focused on all things cloud and application security. And if you've had any inkling to look at anything that I've done in my career, Mike and I have worked together on a variety of projects. We've done a few talks together and had many, many beers together, ruminating about security, apps, cloud, code, and all the horrors and victories of uh, consulting and security. So Mike, welcome to the show. It's it's awesome to have you on board finally. Uh, I am super excited about this one. So um, yeah, man, welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I'm not sure about extraordinaire, but everything else I think was mostly true. <laughs> DC area was definitely correct. Okay. All right. Well, you know, was... you know, it's all about the, it's all about the presence. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. good. So, um, I gave the rundown about like what we're going to talk about CSPM. Uh, but I, I want to dig in a little bit about you. I mean, you've, you're pretty well known in the app second cloud world. You've done a couple of, uh, of things out there where we learn about you and there are podcasts and talks about you and your history, but this is the show about, DevSecOps. And what I want to know is what DevSecOps means to you, how you feel about it. Is it a, a good thing, a bad thing? Are you annoyed every time you hear that, you know, <laughs> that phrase or that word? And, you know, what's your reaction? Uh, visceral, you know, what's your visceral <laughs> <laughs> gut reaction to that? And uh, to people throwing it around, you know, do you feel it's useful? You know? Yeah, I guess the answer to that is conditional. If it's coming from a salesperson, visceral annoyance if it's coming from you know a practitioner then yeah probably worthwhile listening to um but to me it just means automated feedback loops in you know all your various pipelines so application pipelines uh infrastructure pipelines things like that so um getting getting quality getting security getting performance feedback into your uh into your pipelines and getting it in an automated and very quick feedback loop. So it's the opposite of the traditional world of let's run a Fortify scan, let's run a checkmark scan, let's take three days to look at the results, let's kick some Jira tickets over to the devs. Um, it's the opposite of that. It's let's run some quick rules, some grip, grep, whatever you want against you know configuration as code or or actual code and get feedback to devs right away. Um, either breaking builds or conditional builds, all those types of things. Got it. So overall, overall positive. Yeah. Well, that's good because, you know, considering the show name. Um, so you, you mentioned like uh, getting away from those three-day cycles and, and all of that. Do you feel like those processes still have a place in a DevSecOps world? And, you know, if so, how does that, you know, how do you look at, at that generally? Um, the testing process or the the more traditional testing process and how can it fit into the DevSecOps world? Yeah, I mean, I think 
DevSecOps and automation in general can get you, you know, it's like the 80-20 rule. It can get you 80% of the way there for, you know, some if you have some decent, high-quality, low-noise rules to, to give you feedback on um, code quality or security or, you know, infrastructure's code checks. But I think in a lot of areas, there's still a need for context and human, you know, interaction with things. Um, I don't think, despite... Uh, I'll try not to crap on vendors too much during this podcast. Yeah, but, you, you don't have um, to say any vendors. You can you can make <laughs> up names if you'd like. Yeah, I know you want to be, you know, you want sponsors, so it's not going to help if I crap on all of them. But, um, you know, they're the tools are decent and they've gotten better, but they're still very heavy. Um, and so you still need humans to either interact with the tools or better yet, do actual, you know, manual review. Um, if I was in charge of a security program and someone was rolling out some new, you know, application or new authentication feature for our app, I wouldn't just say like run a tool against it and kick it out the door. And that's good to go to production. I'd want very talented people to take a look at it and make sure that, you know, they've thought through all the implications of how it's built and um, all the edge cases. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we, we were talking, we talked about that. Um, I can't, I'd have to find the episode, but just testing and what that looks like and um, you know, how you reduce the amount of time it takes to run through that uh, and whether or not those other like heavier processes happen in parallel or whatever. Um, but the reason you, I, I think the primary reason for me, I wanted uh, to talk to you is that we've, we've teased with the idea of how infrastructure and applications are becoming closer and closer together and that those those two citizens in the world uh, become more and more alike, especially with the advent of like infrastructure as code and cloud and being able to take these concepts of development and apply them to deploying infrastructure and what the processes that we've, you know, what we've learned about over the last decade in application security, how we apply that to you know, this new world of cloud and cloud infrastructure and infrastructure as code and things like that. So you and I have thrown this idea around doing an episode on uh, CSPM. And um, fair warning, through this episode, I may say CPSM just because <laughs> I can't keep that together in my head. Um, but I, I want to get in a sort of an idea from you of how um, CSPM, Cloud Security Posture Management, fits into the world of cloud security first, and then maybe how that can fit into what you were talking about with DevSecOps and automation. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big question, but I mean, I'd say what I've seen, I've seen people approach things is, uh, you know, enterprises are, are moving to the cloud, they spin up AWS or sometimes it's Azure, these days it's possibly just Azure before AWS. Um, and they need some kind of monitoring monitoring tool for their cloud environment. Um, they don't have the maturity to, they don't have a cloud security team. They don't have the maturity to say what we care about yet. So they, they purchase a tool um, and that tool tells them kind of what to care about or they use CIS or CCM, uh, the, the Cloud Security Alliance, um, Cloud Control Matrix. Uh, they use those kind of standards to say what we care about. Um, and they start going through those and making sure that they're red or green and fix things. But I think a lot of it, um, it's, again, it's a lot of noise to signal um, and people get overwhelmed. And if you don't have the 
kind of practitioners on the ground who can deal with the the results from those tools, then you're you know you're going to get overwhelmed. Especially if you start scaling up your cloud, you're going to you know if you have if you're using 100 services and you're deploying thousands of workloads and you have a tool that's checking you know five, 10, 15 configuration items on each one of those services. Uh, I'm not great at math, but that's you know thousands of of potential findings out there. So people get overwhelmed with them pretty quickly. So I think it's a necessary evil and it's definitely a very useful um, tool. And this is something that, you know, we cover in our our talk about um, cloud security. But I think the opportunity with cloud in general is it's uh, very atomic compared to applications. And applications are very complex and there's a lot of things that are decided at runtime that you can't really determine um, when you're just running a simple, you know, static analysis tool against it. Uh, whereas cloud is is generally pretty atomic. If you say, create this S3 bucket, use these parameters, it's going to turn out the way that you, that you think it's going to. So what that gives you is the opportunity to use CSPM and also um, build time checks, uh, which we can, we can talk about that in a little bit, but to check those kind of atomic parameters and say what your source of truth is. Um, so they're they're better at telling you things that are really really are issues. I think people get into an issue get into a situation where they have a lot of issues, but they don't know what they care about yet. And that's when you kind of get this, you know, people get overwhelmed with so many findings out of CSPMs. They don't know where to start. They don't know what to care about, and it's just kind of you know they scale up their cloud presence, and they don't have any approach to how they want to handle these findings. So it's a very, all that said, it's a very useful tool. Um, can definitely, it's a necessary evil to have in a cloud world uh, more than I think most tools um, can get away with, with not having a lot of different security tools. But a CSPM, I think, is definitely something you need in this day and age. But um, there needs to be a pretty strategic and logical approach to how you use it. Or I think it's just, you know, one more tool on the stack that you're not getting the most value out of. Yeah, no, that makes sense because, um, you know, as you were talking, I was just going back to my original question around lessons that we learned in application security and how they apply to cloud security. And one of the things that you just mentioned that sort of got me thinking is, you know, in, in AppSec, we had this approach of scan everything, deal with the false positives, um, you know, and that takes a ton of time. And then we have to get that that uh, tool tuned in a way that is providing actionable results, but you still never really like beat down the false positive pillar, right? It's always going to be there. It's just, it's less of an effort if you do a, a, a big push to get them down versus if you just try to like ignore them as you go. So in your CSPM example, it's like, it, it almost feels like maybe these folks are going through a similar thing. They turn on something like um, vendor A or an, an AWS config, and they have all of these services, and they apply these rules, and they generate a bunch of these results. They may not have a bunch of false positives, but they do have uncontextualized results that they have to weed through. And so they're going through a very similar process um, that we went through you know, back in the day, just getting through the security results from a raw scan. Um, mm -hmm. 
How do you, is that a correlation you would make too? Yeah, I think so. I think the, on the plus side is the checks. I mean, you, you've seen some of this um, in your work experience, but the checks to, to check infrastructure as code, since, you know, cloud formation or Terraform, whatever you're using, um, it's relatively simple. Even the most complex deployments are relatively simple. It's not too much code. There's a set number of variables generally. Um, as long as you don't have any kind of build time dependencies, or you're not doing anything too crazy. You you understand what it looks like versus an application. You know, your logic is is five layers deep. You have middleware, you have libraries that are doing crazy things. Um, you know, so it's much harder to reason about what your application is doing. So, yeah, I think at first people are like, OK, I have this tool. It's telling me a thousand things are wrong. I don't know what to do with it. But once you figure out what you care about um, and what is that signal to noise, it becomes um, it becomes a much better tool to actually tell you what's wrong versus an AppSec tool, I think. Makes sense. So what kind of results? Um, somebody that's coming into this new, maybe they spun up their cloud environment. They want to have a first line of defense or, or something, and maybe they choose a CSPM. What kind of results can they expect out of that? And you know, what is the level of expectation, you know, from a security perspective, in your opinion, that ha that is valuable results from these tools? Um, and what don't they get? Or what you know, what what was like? What's the second step that maybe somebody might expect to get from a CSPM based on all of the, you know, the vendor marketing, and then they sort of get in there and they're disappointed with that. So, what's a reasonable expectation going into these things um, for like uh, maybe uh, you know? Q, Q1 or, you know, a three-month cycle of I've deployed it. These are the things I can action on. Yeah, I mean, a piece of advice I would have is what ends up happening with CSPMs is they become the source of truth for people's cloud landscape. So AWS doesn't offer you, even with organizations, doesn't offer you a way to say, show me all my SNS topics, for instance, or show me all my EC2s. So CSPMs become that source of truth. So I'll give a piece of advice to to anyone who's purchasing one is make it part of any new account that you set up. Make sure that's part of the new account setup, along with, you know, setting all your baselines for security or networking, set up your CSPM. So you always have the information about that account um, in there so you can you can really say what you have on your cloud landscape. Um, but it depends on if you have a relatively small cloud footprint. You're only using a few services. You might not have a huge amount of results, um, and that's probably a good thing because you know if you're if you have a relatively simple deployment model, you're just using you know ECS and RDS and some S3. You might not have a huge amount of results, um, and so you might think that there's not a lot of value in the tool. Um, on the flip side, with enterprises, a lot of folks they get a pretty big cloud footprint pretty quickly, um, especially these days when people are trying to build out more like a micro account or account segmentation model where BUs or even applications are broken out into their own AWS accounts. Um, and so you get a, a pretty big cloud footprint very quickly. I mean, most of the enterprises I've worked with have more than 100 and, you know, getting close to two to 300 accounts. And if you really go for a micro segmentation, then you're, going to do an account per application. And that's, you know, depending on how big you are, you're going to have a huge, a huge number of accounts. So that's when you'll see a lot more results across a much 
wider landscape. Um, so it really depends on kind of the size of your cloud footprint, how many workloads you have out there, how many services you're using, all those types of things. Okay. Yeah, that, the, yeah you know, I mean, I think that is a, that's a great uh, example. I think, you know, a lot of folks that I talk to when we talk about cloud, we, we think of like a single account um, or maybe two or three accounts where you have an administrative or whatever. But you're right. I mean, out of some of these larger organizations where um, the way that accounts are set up in a multi-account strategy can be more granular or you can reach these two to 300 account thresholds. And um, and yeah, trying to manage that is is pretty, pretty insane. So um, one of the things that you, you brought up that I, I want to tease out a bit is um, the the huge amount of results that you're talking about, you were saying that sort of when you take a C, uh, CSPM, CPSM, oh God, I don't even know which one's right now, uh, and you generate these it results. <laughs> yeah, and you generate these results. Um, I think that there's an assumption that a lot of them are absolutely accurate. And that's sort of my assumption going in is that there's a very finite thing that this this is checking for. Do you feel like, one, that that's an accurate statement that usually you're going to have a very low uh, threshold of false positives. And two, because of that, is there anything missing contextually to organizations in CSPMs that um, that you would cover with some other tool or another uh, practice or methodology? Yeah, um, I think the percentage of uh, of false positives is generally lower. But I think the issue you see is even if something is not a false positive, it might be rated higher than, you know, what you think it should be. And also the inverse is true that something um, is rated lower than you, you uh, might think it should be. Um, a good example of one that was sitting in a client's CSPM was uh, public topics, so SNS topics, um, just, you know, you would need to just know the ARN and you could subscribe to that topic, which, you know, it's not a database, it's not an S3 bucket, but people push through, can push through sensitive data through something like that. I think the CSPM had it rated maybe high, but not critical because it's not, you know, it's not an open S3 bucket. So the CISO is not, you know, hearing from Gartner about how big of an issue it is. Um, but it, it can be just as big as an open S3 bucket or database on the, on the internet if someone knows how to, you know, access it and, and subscribe to it and start or push data to it. So I think the, again, you have to go through a normalization process of here's all the things that this checks for. What do we care about? What in our context matters to us? And you can you can take the CIS or the CSA benchmarks um, and you can say, this is a good baseline, but a, they're benchmarks that take, you know, a year plus to define to see it, the CSPs to add another uh, acronym to this, the cloud security provider or cloud service providers change, APIs change. If you read the CIS benchmarks, they're, they're like almost out of date as soon as they're published. Um, so those might not apply or they'll be missing things. And so they're an okay baseline, but you need to pretty quickly define what you care about um, in your cloud footprint. What what makes sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I one of the things that I have noticed is that there's this approach to cloud security that is very attached to things like CIS, OWASP, uh, or whatever your compliance framework is, which is absolutely valid. Um, 
but it's only, you know, it's only one step. And so, you know, just sort of going on to the second part of that question is like, how do we fill those gaps for, um, you know, within the context of automating these things and making sure that we're addressing these issues? Do you have any tips on how to fill the, the contextual gaps of a risk analysis of an organization when you're looking at things like, you know, all right, we're aligning with the CIS benchmarks for cloud. Um, we're using something like config or one of these other tools to just automatically tell us where we're deficient, maybe even something open source. Um, and then they get a, they sort of get the clean bill of health on that. What would your advice be to organizations that take that approach and like where, where should they look for other things or how should they be assessing the overall risk of a, of their organization? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, it's kind of broken up into different, um, kind of areas of concern uh, and AWS is doing more and more to give you the ability to um, kind of create these baselines. I think Azure's done a lot of the same, um, but there's kind of the things that are the basics that everyone should have, you know, done to their AWS accounts, especially when you get into the multi-account world. Um, you know, so you, you have your AWS accounts on organizations, you have config turned on, you have CloudTrail going to a central logging, you know, account. Um, you have federation set up for authentication, all those kinds of things. And then I think the, the two areas that get very tricky are IEM and networking. Um, I've worked with or worked at um, a few different large financial uh, clients that are all going through, either been in, been in cloud for a while or going through migration. And I can honestly say none of them have networking or IEM figured out. Um, and th that they might say differently in their public talks and everything. Uh, but yeah, and AWS, I don't think they they have the recommendations, but I'd love to see how they deal with it on their side because as you scale that up, it just becomes a mess um, and everyone struggles with that. And you see a huge amount of misconfiguration um, in those two areas. Um, so I think the point about that is that you need to start defining what your model is for those things. So how you do IEM, how, you know, are you uh, completely, um, you know, infrastructure is code based where no one, no one touches the console, no one makes changes. Are you half and half? Are you no infrastructure is code and people do have access to change things and you empower developers to, to change things and you hate yourself very soon after you start doing that. Um, and same thing with the network is what's your network gonna look like? Are you segmenting things very, uh, very strongly um, or is it a free-for-all? Pretty much everyone approaches a free-for-all after a few years in the cloud. Uh, same thing with on-prem. That that part from on-prem definitely got brought over was the uh, very flat networks. But um, I think you have to define those things. So new account setup, what you should be doing. And AWS has good best practice documents for all these things. And then the the more contextual things are how you do networking, how you do IAM. And then after that, a lot of the benchmarks are pretty good guides for individual services. So encryption, access, um, all those things are, I say somewhat straightforward. It depends on the service. Some are more complex, um, but you know, you should probably never have public S3 buckets. You should never have, um, you really shouldn't have EC2s on the internet. You should always be using Bastion host. You should definitely never have, you know, RDS or, um, or like a Redis cache on the internet. 
Um, so there are certain things that are very easy to check for and very obvious that you should you should have in place. And that's where the CSPMs come in handy to just say like these these hundred things we should be alerting on and fixing right away. Right. And that that was I was going to ask you if because my experience with deploying a CSPM is probably a year or two old, which in you know cloud speak is uh, you know ancient. And so I've, I've, you know, dealt with them and managed things around them, but I haven't deployed one from soup to nuts for about a year or two. So what I would say is when I was doing that, what I found was exactly what you're saying is that all these things that are very explicit in whether or not it's a problem and how you remediate it are very like CSPM central because it's like you have this asset, public S3 bucket, perfect example, but it won't get into like this, this. S3 bucket has a lot of, you know, external access, or it has a lot of access, or a lot of people are touching it, or it's storing sensitive information. And so what I would love to see, and maybe this is um, something that's happened, so I'd be interested in your opinion here or, or insight, is attachment to things like uh, tags, or data classification tags, or uh, environment tags, or something that can help to contextualize these assets within the cloud um, and provide insight into that. Is that something that you've seen these vendors going for? Is that a feature or, you know, like, where does that, where does that stand to help contextualize yeah, I think, things? I, I definitely think enterprises have done a big push to enforce tagging standards just because just from a purely cost model, they need to know who's paying, paying the bill for, for what. Um, and then also there's the whole remediation workflow of like, okay, there's a public EC2 besides cloud operations, who else can fix this and why is it out there? Are we about to shut something down if we take down this EC2? Um, just a bad example, but you know. Um, but yes, I think CSPMs are definitely pushing in that area to say, we'll help enforce a tag tagging standard. Um, and I think that's another kind of easy, relatively easy one. Not everything supports tagging to the level that you'd, wanted to, but um, it's a relatively easy one just to say, you know, everything that goes out needs to be tagged. Um, and we quickly remediate uh, anything that is not tagged. Um, Capital One uses cloud custodian, uh, at least they did a while ago, they probably moved on to other things, but that was a tool, you know, I think you kind of touched on it. There's, there's initially you just monitor what you have out there then you try to prevent things that are out there. Then the next step, which is pretty scary for a lot of folks, is you fix things automatically. Um, and Cloud Custodian and, and Capital One's talked a lot about how they fix things automatically. And tagging is one of those, like you're not going out the door without tags. Like that's going to get shut down um, right away. So I think that's that's an area, it's scary for people because people aren't used to auto remediation and they, they you know, think that, Everything should go through change tickets and the human should interact with it to make sure that it's all, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. But you can't scale that. Um, you're going to be in Jira ticket hell if you if you try to scale up remediation for in the cloud just due to the, the scale and how fast things get deployed. Um, so I think there's some some easy wins on the auto remediation side, too. And tagging is a good example of like you can't deploy something that has tags uh, or it'll just get shut down right away. You you make a you make a great point. I mean, um, the speed at which things are changing mean that these infrastructure changes can no longer go through change tickets. I mean, again, 
This is something that engineers, developers, and security have gone through already, right? It's like, where we try to enforce a security process. Oh, we have to review this from, you know, this entire application over two weeks. Well, it's going to slow down the development process, right? Now it's, hey, we, we can't make this network change. It has to go through, you know, all these change tickets. Well, that's not going to work because we need to do this in an iterative fashion. So again, all the same pain points are sort of coming to light with this uh, infrastructure and cloud deployment. So um, <laughs> I would say, you know, any ops people that haven't jumped into DevOps or are, uh, are trying to get to, to that point, it's like, talk to your application developers and your security teams. Like they've been through this for the last, like, you know, decade. Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little bit. Um, one of the, so I, I was looking up just in preparation for this episode, how the vendors themselves uh, define CSPM. And I wanted to get your take on it a little bit. Um, and we're not sponsored by these vendors. We don't, uh, I don't have an opinion on these myself. If you have one, you can feel free to share or not share. But uh, two things stuck out to me. One, uh, CrowdStrike came out and said that, you know, they automate that CSPM automates the identification or mediation of risks across cloud infrastructures, including infrastructure as code, or sorry, infrastructure um, as a service, software as a service, and platform as a service. It's used for risk visualization, assessment, incident response, compliance, monitoring, and DevOps integration, which I thought was interesting based on the conversations that we had. Um, and the uh, and Divi Cloud, as an example, came out and said that uh, they made this really, I don't have the whole article, maybe I'll link it in the show notes. They made this really interesting correlation between uh, static and dynamic analysis of code, you know, and how the SaaS version of this for um, for infrastructure as code is the policy as code sort of outlook and that the DAST or like what we consider like your check marks, your Veracode or sorry, other, other side, your HP fortifies or your, maybe your burp suite or whatever is now the Divi cloud. The, uh, the CSPMs are doing this sort of dynamic analysis of your infrastructure deployment. Um, any hot takes on that? Do you agree? Disagree? <laughs> is that like a, uh, um, a good way to look at it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think all the vendors, I mean, I think this is mostly due to Terraform, you know, Terraform has become so popular and it's, it's, it's pushed infrastructure as code, uh, into the limelight. And it's an interesting, you know, HashiCorp is an interesting company, Vault and console and all the rest of the technologies they've come up with. And, um, so I think that's, what's got people talking about infrastructure as code, even though a lot of people have been doing it uh for a while with cloud formation um but that's just not as as sexy as terraform um so i think all these vendors have we have a whole like discussion about this across three episodes about uh dealing with cloud formation for infrastructure as code so listen to this yeah (laughs) yeah so i think i think the security vendors hopped on that hype train to to apply (laughs) They wanted to like, apply their like we do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're good at making money. Um, they hopped on that hype train to apply their current model to infrastructure as code, and I mean there's definitely similarities and there's some analogies you can make in parallels, but I don't think you know an application pipeline and an infrastructure pipeline are not exactly the same thing. You're you're not going to use the same tools. They don't have the same concerns. Um, it's not 
generally not the same scale. So uh, I'm suspect of companies who are like, we do AppSec really well. We can do infrastructure as code really well because they might have people who really know AppSec. They know the Java runtime inside and out, but do they know, you know, do they know AWS and Azure inside and out and what the APIs look like on the back end? Because that's what, that's what really matters and that's how you build a, a solid tool. So I think they're kind of using the the model that they have been selling for a while and trying to apply it to the cloud. And it, it just about fits, but it's not a perfect fit. Um, so I'm a little, a little suspect of it. Cause if you just have a AppSec tool and you're like, yeah, we do, we do infrastructure as code now. Like, okay, you need, you need a lot more kind of company knowledge and uh, a brain trust to really understand how to build these things out and what it looks like versus just saying, yeah, we have a bunch of checks to, to see if your Terraform is secure or not. Um, there's a big difference between just checking for things and understanding what, you know, modern cloud deployments look like. So. Yeah, that that's that's a that's a fair assessment. I mean, my the way that I sort of look at this, right, is that, and you can tell me if you disagree. I'm happy to disagree. Uh, but the is that when you have something like your your Terraform templates, your configuration files, um, more and more we look at this as code. So should it go through um, an SDLC, like a secure SDLC, or is there something else that we need to apply to that type of work? that's different and that it's a, you know, it's a different entity. Like I, I think you and I both understand that there's similarities there, but can we say that you should be putting your infrastructure as code through your secure SDLC, or is there something else that, you know, should we be separating these processes and dividing them into something completely different? So from what I've seen and kind of my opinion on this is, has changed over time, but so you can't, you can create coding standards for developers to say, this is how we do SQL, or this is how we do, um, you know, spaces versus tabs, something like that. You can create pretty, you know, pretty in-depth coding standards, but developers are still going to want to do things the way they want to do it. That's, you know, they're, they're code artisans. They're not just monkeys to type out code and ship things. Okay. They're, they're very, they're artists. Uh, that's sarcasm, but, um, <laughs> I didn't get that, code. man. I, I I do. I mean, you know, there are some some pretty artistic engineers and developers out there. So I think that your your sarcasm and I think it it holds true in both in both ways, full truth and sarcasm. Yeah. If your code's not also creating ASCII art in the file, I'm not sure if you're a true practitioner of the art. So, oh man, that's um, going to be in a museum in New York City soon. <laughs> If it both compiles and is ASCII art at the same time, you're a genius. Yeah. I think I know someone who who will do that now. But um, so, but my point is, art uh, artists, developers want to <laughs> they want to do things kind of their way. You know, they want to they want to express themselves through code, and that, I think that's fine. Like you know, the way you approach things changes. There's styles. There's there's good ways. There's better ways to do things. Um, when it comes to infrastructure as code, what I the push and pull I've seen is that you say, okay, here's our deployment model. You have a EC2, you have an RDS, you have an S3, and you have a CloudFront. That's what you get out the door. Take it or leave it. There's three parameters you can change. Um, and if you are a special snowflake and don't fit into that, you're going to go through a three-month you know, exception process to, to deploy out your ECS or you're going to EKS Kubernetes or whatever 
whatever it is. And so there's that model, which is very rigid, which most most companies don't do. I think a lot of people, they want to do that because they're like, oh, crap, people are spinning up 100 different services. We have no security baselines. We have no insight into way the, the way people are developing things. Um, so let's just, let's just tighten it back down to a very simple deployment model. Then you get to the, well, this doesn't work for, you know, 60% of the workloads. Yeah, if you're just deploying a simple app out, it's fine. But there's a million different reasons why it won't work. Um, so you have this push and pull of a very defined model and giving people more freedom to uh, use the services the way they want to use them. And I think that's where infrastructure as code and all the tools around that are really powerful because you can you can have both to a degree. Um, you can have more freedom and you can also uh, have those guardrails in place. And um, there's still, you know, there's, there's bare, there's kind of guardrails on both sides. You can't have too much freedom. You can't just deploy things, whatever way you want. Um, but you can have more freedom. And I think that's finding that kind of happy medium of, of those two areas is really, is hard to do, but that's, that's where people need to aim is giving enough freedom to give people the ability to do things the way they want without, you know, public S3 buckets or whatever it is. No, I mean, I, uh, I agree. I think this is where, this is where I struggle with, um, with, with that sort of outlook is that we talked about in a previous episode around Terraform being really cool because it provides this entry point for people that may not be traditional developers to review like you can have a compliance guy that maybe is just looking at something that's almost human readable being able to make judgments or compliance decisions on this this code file this .tf and then terraform is opening up the you know the the SDK and there's the cloud formation the cloud formation CDK and the you know they're they're in alpha stages of how can we expose more you know developer functions or low level programming to this infrastructure as code so obviously there is some demand for that where folks are like I don't have this you know in this tight controlled system I don't have the ability to do x y or z right I need more freedom I need more of this and so my reaction to that is the more freedom that you get, the more we have to go through this process of evaluating the security of it because now you're exposing things like Python or Bash or whatever to um, you know, these infrastructure as code deployments. So they do need to go through these security reviews and we need to automate that. So I always sort of, as I look at where, where we're going, this ebb and flow of more freedom, less freedom, you know, what's the, what's the, the middle ground? I'm like, just put it into you know, this version of a secure SDLC so that you have all these same things that we've learned about over time of like, like you were talking about, you have to understand what your requirements are, your plan, your design phase, your, what tools are you using to code and build? What are your coding guidelines? How do you test it? You know, that's where this CSPM comes in or the, the, uh, the Sentinel comes in, you know, we're testing these things. Okay. We deploy them. What do we do after we deploy them? How do we monitor them? Like, on a basic level to me, it sounds like we can apply all the same phases of a secure SDLC, of an SDLC, a CICD pipeline to these infrastructure as code um, ecosystems. And so I, I just think that we're a little bit more immature on the tooling, but I think there's a lot of 
things that we've done uh, in the AppSec community that we can bring to the table here um, by training, by applying the same types of process. And I guess what I'm trying to unpack is where is the difference, right? What is the, what's the, the, the thing that is like to you, these are different things, right? Or, or am I converting you? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think a lot of the same, the same kind of true is applied to both sides. And I think you can use a lot of the same tooling types on both sides. Like SemGrep is a great example where you can use SemGrep to check for, you know, insecure Java patterns, and you can use SemGrep to check for um, insecure cloud formation configuration. So that's like, that's a tool that works on both. I'm more skeptical with vendors to say that like, we do AppSec really well, we'll also do infrastructure as code really well. Gotcha. Um, I think, uh, I think it, it's, again, I hate to crap on vendors, but it's also a, <laughs> one of my favorite pastimes, but, um, <laughs> but it's ironic that some, something like SemGrip, which is just, you know, grip with, you know, it's not just grip, but if there's, you know, you can add some, some context to it is, is becoming so popular because these overweight tools were pushed for so long and people struggled to make them work in a very rapid kind of deployment cycle. And so I'm, I don't want cloud to go to the same direction where it's like, okay, you want to deploy an S3 bucket? Well, we have to run our tool on five days later. We're going to tell you what's wrong with it. Oh, we were completely incorrect because the finding from the tool was wrong. Well, it's five more days for us to do analysis again. So I hope cloud can, and I think it is leapfrog that kind of very heavy SDLC and just go straight to a very high signal to noise SDLC, which is what I think, you know, traditional AppSec is moving towards um, with things like SEMGREP, where maybe you're not checking a thousand things, but you are checking for the critical things. Um, right. And so you have much more trust in your tool that when it breaks the build, there's going to be an issue underlying the actual break. No, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I, and I, that that is one of the things that I hope people take from this is, you know, the the thing that I feel like we've learned in cloud is that we can start with small, testable, accurate things first. Um, so when you have your your AWS config, even though it's a lot of results, the accuracy is high. So even though you're, um, you know, maybe you're just comparing against the small compliance set, you can start with that. You're not going to get, you know, in some cases, I, I mean, I don't know if you've run a scan in a while, but like 3,000 false positives on an app. You're like, okay, you know, like <laughs> dust off your uh, your yeah. pants and like get into it and just deal with false positives for, you know, two weeks and then write your rules and edit your rules and, you know, whatever you, you are doing what, in whatever vendor-specific sort of bastardization of a programming language to write your rules in. And then you have something like, like you said, SEMGREP, where now we're like, you know what? We can write these rules in something that's easily understandable. It's open source. People are generating these rule sets. It's it's like you can pull these in and um, and use them, and you can modify them. You can start from scratch. Like those are all, I think, really powerful um, ideas for something like infrastructure as code. It's like we can take this stuff and start small, accurate, um, granular tests and look at it as like let's start with. The DevOps in mind. Start with the iteration, the atomic stuff in mind. So, um, that's a big lesson learned 
uh, for me is to like stop looking at these things from this bigger picture view. And that's where I feel like um, I struggle with the CSPM idea because I do think that you turn that tool on and many vendors are like, look at all the results you have, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder how accurate that is. I do think that the a- accuracy is higher, but again, with the contextualization conversation we were having before, you know, what is what value is it really providing? Should you be scared of those initial results? Is that something that you should sort of take home and be like, yeah, you know, they found a lot of stuff or they didn't. Like to your point, um, you may turn it on in your account and you might have like really small, a small number of results and maybe that's a good thing. I think that the tendency is, well, they didn't find anything. So is this really a valuable tool? You know, and so I think that vendors realize that too. And so there is a, there is an incentive to clients to make sure that there's results in there. And mm-hmm. uh, I, we have to sort of flip the bid on that and, and say, you know, these results are accurate. These results are um, going to keep you secure as you scale. And if you're a practitioner, that's where you come from it as is like, I am, you know, I want to be accurate. I want to be, um, you know, uh, pointed in, in what I'm resolving and, and move forward uh, with that in mind. And I'll get off my tangent. <laughs> no, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. The, the, sadly, I guess in most sales cycles, the, the motivation of sales folks is not always the, their goals are not always the same as, you know, people buying their tools. Um, to play devil's advocate on myself, I'd say the other group that, you know, you, you and I are practitioners. We've spent plenty of time doing pen tests, doing code review, doing, you know, cloud reviews, all those types of things. There's a whole other group of people who are um, compliance folks who are tasked with, you know, keeping the cloud quote unquote secure or at least compliant. And I think what makes a good tool for those folks is one that informs them as to what the issue is. And at the same time, gives the practitioners the details they need to actually fix the issues. If you say, hey, you have a bunch of unencrypted X, but you don't know what X is, what what value did you do? Okay, great. The the CISO now knows that something's unencrypted and is, is sending emails at 2 a.m. on a Saturday, ruining everyone's weekend. So you need to have this balance between give the compliance folks who are going to be doing the, the hard work of getting things fixed and reporting on what the issue is and working with the various folks, especially in, in enterprises. It's not like, you know, walk down two cubes and say like, hey, Bob, fix that S3 bucket. It's like, let's figure out who this, who actually owns this. Let's figure out if they can make the change. Does a change ticket need to go in? So there's a whole, you know, infrastructure just around those types of things. So they play to two different groups. So practitioners want very low noise, high signal. They can just like, okay, what's insecure on me? What can I fix? And then there's the compliance folks who, need a worldview of everything that's out there and how do I actually look against CIS because they might not have their own internal benchmark. They haven't worked with, you know, cloud security. They don't really know what a secure, a secure cloud looks like. So they need to be informed by vendors as to what, um, what things should look like. So there's kind of two different worlds. And I think like every tool, um, but I think especially CSPMs, they play to that, that segment more. I don't think that's really a bad thing. It's just 
again, are they are they being accurate about what they're reporting, and are they are they do they have a good view of the real risk of things, or are they just leading, you know, their uh, leading their the compliance folks on to to focus on things that aren't that big of an issue. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's you know that's an an incredible point. Um, to Thank to you. sort of um, no, I mean to, to seriously on that because, note, <laughs> because and and uh, I we talk about um making sure that we are um you know taking off our cynical hats while we communicate with other groups like compliance like you know project management product management all these kinds of things because we all have roles to play within an organization and i think we do especially in security i mean oh, oh my lord right we have the cynical view of engineering of uh as an industry not as individuals um of engineering of <laughs> but compliance maybe also yes <laughs> okay of of project management right and it's like we all have our challenges throughout the organization and if you are focused on compliance even though something like semgraph is going to give you these like really nice cli results that you can you know iterate through fast and it's not maybe necessarily generating this pretty graph or um providing this executive summary of everything reporting is important i mean as a mm-hmm. consultant uh, you know historically I can tell you that how a client wants reporting is huge. I mean, it can make mm-hmm. the difference between keeping a client um, and losing that client because the reporting was crap or they didn't understand it or the results weren't explained well. And you might not even ever know that because, you know, you've delivered the report. You're like, ah, oh, that's great, man. I found all these awesome, you know, exploitable criticals or whatever. They go and fix it and you never hear from that client again because maybe the engineering team wasn't the buyer. They might've been really excited about that, but you know they couldn't present that to their executive team or they couldn't show how the remediation mattered or they couldn't show like what the overall risk of that application was. So you feel really good about that as, a, as, a, as an assessor. Um, but when it comes down to brass tacks, it's like you don't get that repeat client or you don't um, really win there with the people that were were buying that report, right? That clean report. So in the same sort of vein with something like CSPM, like you said, you know, even though we could go and probably find some of the results with something like Scout or SEMGREP or whatever, it's like consolidating and making sure that those are clear to your all of the teams is I feel like this underappreciated um activity that needs to happen so that everybody is on the same page mm-hmm. and and i think that 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 really does help to wrap up like why cspms are so i mean gaining so much traction is that there, it's not because maybe the results are the best but they sort of walk this line of being accurate ish and they have these really nice graphs that show progress and show that you're remediating the items and they align to these um standards that while we all don't like it, are driven by like the the standards that drive security typically do come from compliance or breaches, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they attach to that and they're able to deliver those results to the people that are paying the bills. And I think that if we were able to take some of these tools that we really like, like SEMGREP or um, the infrastructure as code stuff or Sentinel or whatever, and, and, and make those reports, make those um, end results um, more informative to the executive team or the the teams that are 
you know, looking for this information, I think that's when the open source community is going to find, you know, power in all the work that they're doing. Right now, we're, we're just not there. It's like we're still sort of bookending this process with the compliance-driven stuff and uh, what, what comes out as an executive summary and, uh, you know, what we really like as, um, you know, practitioners with the iterative sort of approach. And that middle ground hasn't really been fine-tuned or, um, I guess, made whole, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's all, I think of it as practitioners don't really want to be bothered by the reporting. They don't want to sit in PowerPoint all day and, and write macros for Excel. So don't hate the compliance folks that do that stuff for you. Um, but they also need some information and they need tools that work for them. So there has to be you know, those two groups have to work together, the security folks and the compliance folks. And yeah, I think as, as tools, if they can converge, I think you kind of nailed it, like a CSPM, maybe the practitioner is not the buyer, not the target market, but your compliance person who can read a report and can create an executive summary to tell executives what the, you know, how things look. That is a different target market than SEMGRIP is. Um, and yeah, if you could find that happy medium of like super high signal to noise and also the reporting. Um, and I mean, I think something that's like under underappreciated is preventative because when there's one public S3 bucket, that's, you know, the, the world is on fire. But when you prevent a thousand public S3 buckets, that never comes up. No one's looking at the Jenkins job that's like, yep, we found that it didn't happen. Broken build, developer fix it, moved on. But I think that's pretty, you know, that's pretty powerful. Like you're, you're preventing risk from being created, but that's a reporting loop that's just never created. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, if those, if security and compliance works a little closer together and the compliance is not, you know, they're not using Metasploit on a daily basis. They're not, you know, using SQL map or doing much fun hacking stuff, but if you work in the real world, compliance is, is part of it and you can't avoid that. So you know, use, leverage them for, for good. Um, and security people love complaining about uh, things not getting fixed, but the people who get stuff fixed are the compliance folks who write reports and PowerPoints to say, here's what you should care about. And the executives pay attention to that because they, uh, they like pretty graphs and trends. So. I mean, dude, I, I, I have found some of my best success finding ways to tie tools that I like or processes that I like to what uh, a compliance team wants. And it, like, if you can make that connection, um, you, you'll, you'll go a lot further, man. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's make them, make them your friends because uh, honestly, like if, if you can deliver that, I mean, it, it's, it makes a huge difference in, in your daily life, uh, in your mood, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, all that. So, uh, so Mike, man, we've been going for well over 30 minutes. We're, we're coming up on the hour. So thanks so much for coming on and joining us, uh, this evening. Um, I really appreciate you being here. Is there anything you want to say or, uh, or throw out there, uh, in the, the final few seconds and minutes here? Yeah, I just want to say thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation. And if anyone out there needs application or cloud security, consulting they can reach me on my website at mbmconsultants.co thanks well then that is a wrap
As always, thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, you can always send us feedback at www.r2dso.com on Twitter at r2dso. And if you want to hit us old school and send us an email, it is security at r2dso.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.